Friday night I was going to bed and I had a lot of different things on my mind, which is kind of typical, I guess. Uh, I was thinking about our marriage morning event, which was yesterday morning, which was amazing. We had about 60 people here in the room investing into their marriages, their families, and their future. Our next one, by the way, is Saturday, May 6th. I encourage all of you that are married or are considering getting married to sign up and be a part of that. Um, but I was thinking about some of the details. There were things I knew I needed to do in the morning to make sure we were readied, uh, ready. And then my daughter, who plays lacrosse at Liverpool, her first varsity game was in Rochester. And at the last minute, they moved the game time because of the storms that were coming through. And now I was, it was interfering with my plans. I was trying to think, how am I going to do marriage mornings? And how am I going to get to the game? And then there were all, just other things on my mind. You know what it's like. And you're trying to fall asleep. And when you try to sleep, and there's a lot of things on your mind, if you're anything like me, you don't sleep well. Or even if you sleep well for a period of time, you don't sleep as long as you would like to sleep. I woke up pretty early, and I was just lying there in bed awake, just still thinking about the stuff that I fell asleep thinking about. And probably about 6.30, I hear my daughter Madeline in her room. She wakes up. And so I go in, and I get her, and I bring her into our room. And we're just lying there in bed, and we're talking. And Maddie goes, Daddy, how did you sleep? I said, oh, you know, not, not okay. Why? I got up early, I was waking up, why? Oh, I was thinking about a lot of stuff. Why? I don't know, that's how my brain, that's just how my brain works. And she looks at me, she goes, Daddy, you don't have a brain. <laughs> We've learning that she does not have the gift of encouragement. <laughs> what do you do when you have a lot on your mind? Where do you go? Where do you turn? Jesus here, and this is a significant understatement, has a lot on his mind. He knows what's coming. He's not unaware. So much, the weight of the world literally on his mind and on his heart. Where does he go? I think what we learn in this text this morning is going to be informative and instructive for you and me. Because where we turn and where we go and what we do when we have a lot on our mind, a lot in our hearts, reveals a lot about ourselves and actually what we believe about God. And so let's look at this familiar story together in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. It says that Jesus took his disciples and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So Judas, by the way, has already left. He's betraying Jesus. He has the 11 with him. He tells them, sit and pray. But then he takes three of them. It says he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who we know to be James and John. Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. He takes them further with him, and he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup Pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to his disciples and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them, he went away, prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
Three things that we learn from this story about prayer, three things that we need to know about prayer. And the first thing is this, prayer is for the honest. Prayer is for the honest. In this memorable story, there are two things that jumped out at me as being remarkably transparent about how Jesus was doing on this night. And the first thought was this, he didn't want to be alone. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of all, didn't want to be alone. He asked Peter, James, and John, come with me. Come with me. Stay with me. He asked them, watch with me. And I get this. My, my daughter, Maddie, who I mentioned earlier, she has cerebral palsy. She has a lot of different surgeries related to that. And Last summer, she was having a tendon lengthening surgery on both of her legs, pretty significant surgery. And we were in the room, and she had already been given some of the anesthesia, and they were prepping her. And they told us, we really just want to take her back into the surgical suite, just her. Of course, she didn't like that. She wasn't very happy about that. And she was getting very agitated and upset. And so my wife and I said, if you'll let one of us go, with you, it's going to go a lot better. And so they allowed, they were very kind about it, they allowed. And so here's a picture of me and Maddie in her room getting ready to go back to the surgical suite. And they had me gown up so that I, you know, could go into that, that area that was obviously needs to be very clean. And uh, this is, uh, Maddie loves this picture because she just loves, she, she thinks I look hilarious. She thinks this is, a, like when she has my phone, she tries to find this picture all the time to show to strangers. Like, look at how ridiculous my, my dad looks. And, and uh, so I was able to walk with her into the surgical suite and be with her all all the way until she was under anesthesia. And it was just, you know, when we are headed into dark moments, difficult moments, when we're really going through it, we really don't want to be alone. I understand that sometimes we want to get away from stuff, but we really want people that we know and love and trust to stay near and to stay with us. And I'm just struck by how human Jesus is here. He's just like you and me. He knows what's coming, and he asks his three closest friends, would you just stay with me, just be near me? And the other thing about this story that I see the transparency of Jesus Christ is his own words where he says, I'm very sorrowful even to death. Now, in the Greek, we don't have a great translation for the word sorrowful that Jesus uses here. Very sorrowful is actually kind of a weak, soft translation. Jesus is speaking of absolute anguish and wretchedness here. His soul is at its absolute end. And when he says, even to the death, he means one of two things. He either is speaking about the scale of his sorrow, I'm so sorrowful all the way to death, or he's speaking of the source of his sorrow, that my sorrow is coming from the the impending death that is before me. But either way, Jesus, according to Luke, is in such agony that as he falls on his face and begins to pray earnestly, Luke 22, 44 says, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I don't actually think Luke is using hyperbole here. It's not Luke's style. Luke is a master historian, an expert on detail, and he's a physical medical doctor. So when Luke says that that Jesus was sweating drops of blood, he's actually, I think, it's not hyperbole and it's not symbolism, it's not a metaphor. There actually is a condition, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's hematohydrosis. It's a condition in which the blood vessels, the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands can rupture so that the sweat glands will actually exude blood. And this only occurs under extremely, extremely, extreme physical or emotional stress. 
It gives us a glimpse as to how Jesus is doing in this moment, that he is under such physical and emotional stress that his blood vessels are bursting, and he is sweating blood. When you look at Jesus in the garden, one of the questions that people have asked over time, and this maybe has never struck you before, is this. Is this actually embarrassing for Jesus, that we know this, that we have this story? Here he is. Like, shouldn't he be strong and stoic? Shouldn't he be like, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to take on the devil. I'm going to drink the cup. I'm going to do all this thing for all. But we see his struggle here. Now, what do we make of it? I think it reveals two things to us. It reveals the nature of the cross and the nature of this man, Jesus. The nature of the cross first is this. That, you know, other people throughout history have, have faced martyrdom actually, quote, unquote, better than Jesus does. There are people, you can look in Acts, the story of Stephen. Stephen is not sweating drops of blood. Stephen is not in great agony. Stephen is not trying to pray his way out, and he's about to be martyred. What do we make of this? How do we make sense of this? And what this must mean is this, that the cross was unfathomable suffering. That, that, that what Jesus was, what was before him, what was before Jesus was not just physical suffering of the most extreme sense, but emotional, emotional pain and mental pain, but more than anything, spiritual pain as he in a way is separated from the Father and experiences the wrath of God and becomes our sin on our behalf. And so the reason why Jesus' struggle is unusual is because this death is unusual. There's no one else has gone through something like this. And the clue in the text is the word the cup. Jesus keeps praying about the cup. What does the cup mean? Well, in the Psalms, in the prophets, and then again in the book of Revelation, the cup signifies God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath poured out towards sin and towards uh, our, our uh, unrighteousness, the punishment for our sins. And one of the commentaries said this, the whole the, when Jesus says the cup, here's what he's talking about. The whole of the punishment for all people, for all time, for all sins, all of God's judgment and punishment and wrath distilled into one cup. No mere mortal lip could give it a solitary sip. And when Jesus put the cup to his lips and he knew what was coming in the next 12 hours, it was so bitter to him that he prayed, let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong and his commitment to the Father's will was so steadfast that he took the cup with both his hands and this is the quote, at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. The cup. See, all humans drink the cup of death, but only one drank the cup of God's wrath against sin. Jesus is sinless. He's holy. He detests sin. But during this crucifixion, he bears our sins. But not just that. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus didn't just bear our sins upon the cross. He became our sin. He became our sin so that he might take the punishment that you and I deserve for all of our sin, for all of time. And this is how Jesus earned the right to offer the forgiveness that he offers. He bears the punishment of sin, and he identifies with it. He tastes the Father's wrath. He tastes the Father's revulsion against sin. He drinks the cup dry. The Father turns from the Son while he's upon the cross. And at least experientially, Jesus loses in that moment perfect union with the Father. This cross was no normal death. And so Jesus' agony is no normal agony. 
The other thing we learn is about the nature of Jesus. And what I love about this story is we see the humanity of Jesus Christ. The mystery of God becoming flesh is this, that we believe that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Not 50% God, 50% man, but somehow fully God, fully man. And I don't know about you, but when I read the Gospels, sometimes I see Jesus doing really cool things like walking on water and raising the dead and turning water into wine and taking five loaves and two fish and feeding 5,000 men and all the women and the children. And I read all this stuff about Jesus, and I don't actually feel like I have a lot in common with him sometimes. But then I get to this story, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there I am. (laughs) That's me in the garden, struggling, fearful, unsure, asking honest prayers of the Father. Jesus, so he's so honest that the only reason we even know about this story is because he must have told his disciples, right? They all were sleeping. None of them saw Jesus do this. After he was resurrected, according to the gospel, he spent 40 days. According to the book of Acts, he spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them. And in those 40 days, at some point, he must have said, hey, Peter, James, John, while you guys were, you know, napping, which... Let's have a little sympathy before we judge these guys too harshly. They just had a big meal, right? I mean, how many of us after, after a, a big meal? Earlier this week, the pastors at our church, we took our senior citizens out to the Chinese buffet. I forget if it was Monday or Tuesday. And it must have been Tuesday. And we, we enjoyed ourselves maybe too much. And then as we were driving back to the office together, it was just like this lull in our car. We're all like, uh-oh, we're not going to have a very productive afternoon, are we? <laughs> So I have a little sympathy on these guys, but Jesus at some point must have called them back after his resurrection and said, I want you to know what that was like for me. I want to be honest with you. We have this because Jesus wanted his disciples to know it. That means he wants you to know it. Prayer is for the honest. And here's the question for us to consider this morning. How honest am I when I pray? Some of us have grown up and, and we think that when we pray, we actually have to be the best version of ourselves. We can't step on God's toes. Don't offend him. Don't say anything wrong. King James language only. Some of us pray in such a way that we're actually never really being honest. And when you read the Psalms, I mean, if you think you can't pray honest, then you should read some of David's Psalms. I mean, if if some of us prayed in church today the way David prayed in the Psalms, people would look at us like we're crazy, like we're heretics. It's okay to be honest with God. You know why? First off, he can handle it. Secondly, he already knows it. You're angry with God? He knows. Bring it to him in prayer. You feel disappointed with God? He knows you feel that way. Bring it to him in prayer. You're upset about the set of circumstances that you've been handed? He gets it. Jesus was left alone in the garden when his closest friend should have been with him. He knows denial and betrayal and abandonment and pain and suffering. He's our empathetic high priest We can be honest, pray honest prayers. Second thing we learn here is that prayer is the battle. When I'm on a plane and the turbulence kicks in and I'm trying to figure out how nervous I should be, I don't look at the other passengers because I don't know, it might be their first ride. I look at the flight attendants. And if they look comfortable, then I'm comfortable. But if they look nervous, then I feel nervous, right? When we look at Jesus in this story, I'm sure the disciples for three and a half years have looked at Jesus in really scary times, and they've always thought, he's not nervous. I'm okay. Jesus in total control for three years, but here he seems to fall apart. 
He falls on his face. It's the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus physically is recorded as falling on his face. He's, he, he's falling apart. And what we're seeing here is that for Jesus, this prayer was battle. Prayer is the battle. He's battling. He doesn't want to be alone. Three times he prays the same basic prayer. He keeps checking back in with his friends. Are you with me? Are you awake? Are you fighting with me? Do you care about me? He's in anguish. He's sweating drops of blood. This is a battle for Jesus. And we look at this battle and we think, it kind of looks like he's not ready for what's coming next. I'm a little nervous looking at Jesus in the garden. Hayden Robinson's great Bible teacher says it this way. He says, where was it that Jesus sweat his great drops of blood? It wasn't in Pilate's hall, and it wasn't as he carried the cross to Golgotha. Jesus sweat his drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's there that, according to Hebrews 5, 7, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And then Hayden Robinson says this. He says, if I had been there that night, and witnessed Jesus' struggle, I would have been worried about his future. I would have thought to myself, wow, if he's so broken up when all he's doing is praying, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the same calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet, when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage, and his friends fell apart and fell away. What's the lesson? The lesson is this. Prayer does not prepare us for the battle. Prayer is the battle. Prayer does not prepare us for the battle. Prayer is the battle. Jesus battled in prayer in the garden so that when he got up, he could walk with confidence and steadfastness all the way to the cross. Prayer is the battle. And I think we can all relate to this because prayer is a battle for Christians, right? Most Christians, if, you're, if we're honest, we'd say the area of my Christianity that I, the area of my spiritual life that I feel the weakest in is my prayer life. Many people would say that. I, I hope no one knows how little I pray or how poorly I pray or how selfishly I pray. And we struggle. You know, we're, we're not Jesus in this story. We're Peter, James, and John. We're the ones that can't even stay awake and, and pray. And Jesus comes to Peter, James, and John. He says, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And then this famous saying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And when Jesus uses that word flesh in the Greek, that word flesh, it doesn't mean like evilness or it doesn't even mean sinfulness. It simply means that there's human weakness, that because we're humans, we have human weakness. And so Peter and James and John, their problem is not desire and their problem is not enthusiasm. In fact, in the chapter before, Peter said to Jesus, I will die for you. And two chapters before that, James and John said, we will drink the cup. These three out of the 12 were the most enthusiastic. They were the, they were the ones at the front of the line. They were the teacher's pets. They sat up front. They raised their hands for every question. There was no lack of enthusiasm and desire. What they lacked was the moral stamina to face up to what it was actually going to mean to live out their desire and their enthusiasm. And isn't that true often for you and me? We have the desire, we have some of the enthusiasm, we know what we should do, but we lack sometimes just the moral stamina to do it. And it's a, prayer is a spiritual battle. And one of the reasons why prayer is so hard for Christians is because Satan hates prayer. He hates it when we pray. There's, a saying, there's an old saying, I won't remember exactly who said it or how it goes, but something like this, that the devil laughs when we make our plans, and the devil laughs when we do our events, and the devil laughs when we do, but the devil trembles when we pray. He hates when we pray. Because when we pray, we have access to the Father. 
and we're throwing all of our trust and hope in him. And in a way, it opens some things up for the Lord to do some things that are really wonderful. If you're wondering why you don't have victory in certain areas of your life, prayer might be the battle you're losing. The battle is not necessarily a battle with lust or a battle with an addiction or a battle with your pride. Yeah, those are all battlefronts. But what if you're losing those battles because you're prayerless? The battle is prayer. Now, how do we pray? I want to give you five quick suggestions. There's, the Bible talks about prayer in two ways. The Bible talks about pray without ceasing, which when you read that verse the first time, you're like, how do I do that? i got to live my life. i got a job. i got to do things, right? Pray without ceasing doesn't mean to literally bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray 24-7. It means to go all day with an awareness of the nearness of God and the ways in which his kingdom is breaking in on your world, right? So that's a, we have to do that. But then there's another way that the Bible talks about prayer where Jesus says, get into your prayer closet, close the door, and pray. And Jesus models for us getting up in the morning to get alone with the Father for prayer. And so sometimes I've heard Christians say, I don't, have a really good pr- I don't really pray a lot, but I just kind of do it all day. And I get what you're saying, but that's only half of it. That's great that you're doing that. But, but there is also something to be said for what is your devoted time and place of prayer on a regular basis. Let me give you five quick practical suggestions on how to do this. The first thing is right time, right place. It's so important that we choose a time and the place that works and makes sense and is consistently available to us. I know some of your lives are so full. You're like, how am I gonna carve out 10 minutes? I got kids, I got a job, I got a life. So maybe for you, it's the shower in the morning. Maybe it's your drive to work. Whatever it is, carve it out. Find the right place, the right time. And by right time, Probably for me, although I try to pray as I'm going to bed, it's not my best time to pray because there's something else happening. I'm passing out, right? So for me to say, I'm gonna pray every night right before I go to bed, I think that's a good idea, but I gotta carve out a different time. Otherwise, there's gonna be many days where I don't actually pray, I just pass out. Right time, right place. Number two, get help when you're gonna pray. Find a a model of prayer, Uh, If you need one, just go online, different prayer models. There's so many structures, structure and systems can help you create new behaviors. Something as simple as putting together a list of things that you're praying for and having that on your phone so that when you go to pray, you're not starting from scratch. You don't have to reinvent the wheel with prayer. So much content is out there to help you pray. And then especially the Bible. If you're really struggling with prayer, go to the Bible and open the Psalms and look at the prayers of the Old Testament kings and look at the prayers of Jesus and the prayers of Paul and just use their prayers prayers as a starting place for your prayer. Get help. Number three, we have to eliminate distractions. For me, it's my phone. It's the biggest distraction in my life. And so, and, and now it's on my watch too. Uh, so it's like, you can't really get away for it. So if I come into this space during the week and I'm looking to pray, I got to leave my phone back usually on the media booth somewhere. And I'll text people in my life that really need to reach me at times. I might text my mom and my wife and just say, hey, uh, or or even our staff sometimes, I'll text Antonia and the rest of the team. I'll say, hey, I'm gonna pray in the sanctuary for the next hour. And I'm not saying it so that they're proud of me or that they think something of me, but so that they know like, okay, for the next hour, half hour, like probably won't be able to reach him. And it gives me a little peace of mind that I'm not thinking like, what if they're trying to reach me, right? you got to eliminate distractions. These things, uh, I don't have my phone in my back pocket. I don't know why I'm patting my butt. Uh, these, these, these things, which is supposed to be my phone, these things are a constant buzzing, <laughs> noise-making, you know, there's something important happening that you're missing out on. You, anyone else feel that way? we we got to figure this out. We will not give our attention to the Lord in prayer if we can't figure that out. And then my next advice is actually going to feel contradictory. 
victory. It's embrace distractions. Now, this is the best piece of advice I've received in a long time on prayer. How many of you know that when you go to pray, all of a sudden everything jumps into your mind, right? And I used to, for the longest time, try to force all of those things out of my mind so that I could be spiritual and pray. And someone much wiser than me one time said, no, those are often just your real prayer requests pushing in. That's what you really want to pray about. That's what you really need to pray about. So don't push them out, embrace them, and turn your distractions into prayers. You're thinking about that event that's coming up, pray about it. You're thinking about the hard conversation you have to have, pray about it. You're thinking about that person that you're struggling with, pray about them, okay? So sometimes you just gotta embrace the distraction and turn it into prayer. And then my last thought is this, consistency is more important than duration. I know Jesus challenges them to pray for an hour, but for most of you, if you don't have any prayer life right now, it would be bad advice for me to say to you, pray an hour a day, because I'm setting you up for failure. Duration doesn't matter as much as consistency. Start with two minutes a day if that's what works for you, but just start. Just show up. The first rule of prayer is show up. And if we will show up, set an alarm, a recurring alarm in your phone for every day at the same time on your way to work, it goes off, it just says pray. And just for the next minute, for the next two minutes, and 30 days into doing that, you might go, I can go another minute. And then a year from now, you might be praying for 10 minutes a day, and you might end up someday praying for an hour, but it's consistency more than duration. So five practical thoughts on how do we get better at the battle of prayer. Last thought this morning, Pastor Anthony is going to join me. When I look at this story of Jesus in the garden, I see that prayer is the way through. It's the way through. Matthew provides something for us that the other gospel writers don't. He, he gives us some interesting insight into the difference between Jesus' first prayer and his second prayer. And they sound the same, but they're slightly different. I want you to see it. I've put them on a slide together so you can see them side by side. But in his first prayer, Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. So the request is, let the cup pass. And then he goes, say, then he adds on to the end, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But the second time, it's, it's just subtly different, but there's a progression in Jesus' mindset here. The second time he says, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it. This time he doesn't say, let it pass for me. He's beginning to accept, I, this is not going to pass. If this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. What's happening here? Because a lot of times this is a difficult story for us because it looks like Jesus is trying to get out of his responsibilities. He's trying to shirk his responsibilities. Let's figure something. Let's, let's, let's change the story here. But that's not what's happening. Here's what's happening. Listen. Jesus' prayer is an exploration of the limits of God's will, but not an attempt to break God's will. He's not trying to break God's will. He's exploring the possibilities within God's will. Is there another way for me to redeem humanity, glorify you, and accomplish the work you gave me to do that does not require me to drink dry the cup of damnation and suffer separation from you? He's not saying, I'm not committed to your will or your purposes or your plans. He's just saying, is there a way through this that doesn't involve this? The issue is not whether Jesus is going to accept the Father's purpose, but the issue is, does the purpose have to include the cup? And here's what we learn about prayer from Jesus here. Prayer is not a way out. Prayer is the way through. Prayer is not a way out. It's the way through. Most of us pray like it's a way out. God, get me out of this. Fix this problem for me. Take this from me. Give me this. But what if that's not what prayer is? 
And if prayer is only about you finding your way out or getting your way, then you know what happens? You will be disappointed. You'll be discouraged. You'll be disillusioned. You'll be disenfranchised. But prayer is not escaping. Prayer is embracing. Prayer is an invitation to hold on to the Father's will. Corey Ten Boom, a woman who survived the concentration camps, said this, when a train is going through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust, you trust the engineer. When a train is going through a tunnel and it gets dark and you kind of get disoriented and you're like, what are we doing? Where are we going? Is everything okay? Why is it all of a sudden so dark in here? It's not the time to get off. You don't get out, you get through. You trust the engineer, you sit still. Jesus' prayer in the garden was not a way out of anything. He didn't get out of a single thing through this prayer. He still, the very next day, walked to the cross and drank the very cup that he prayed about, avoiding here possibly. His prayer was not for a way out. His prayer was for a way through. Jesus was honest with his prayers. You and I need to be honest with our prayers. Jesus battled in prayer. We have to learn to battle in prayer. And in the garden, he found a way through so that you and I could have a way out of sin, death, hell, and the grave, and all that that represents. And it happens here in the garden. Now, let me finish with this thought. Gardens are interesting in Scripture because, in many ways, our mess began in a garden. Genesis 3, Garden of Eden. Here, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, his battle to go to the cross. And then next Sunday, we'll see Jesus shows up in a garden again. This time, he's the resurrected Lord. But one of the commentaries said this, gardens repeatedly host crucial events in the drama of redemption. In Eden, the need for redemption arises because Adam and Eve fail the test of obedience to God's will. They heed the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of God. But in Gethsemane, Jesus, who Paul calls the second Adam, passes the test of obedience to the Father's will. Here's what it means. Adam and Eve failed their test in the garden. And because Adam and Eve failed their test, their sin was imputed to all humankind. That's why you and I were born with a sin nature. But Jesus Christ is the true and better Adam who didn't fail his test in the garden, thank God. He passed his test in the garden. And because Jesus passed his test in the garden, his obedience and his righteousness is imputed to us. So our sin, which was given to us in the Garden of Eden, can be removed from us because of our repentance and confession of our sin and the forgiveness offered in Jesus. But more than that, the righteousness and obedience of Jesus can be imputed to us because he passed his test in the garden. Because you and I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it means that we have right standing in the eyes of God. We are approved of by God. We are accepted by God. And we have access to God. And because we're approved, accepted, and because we have access, we can pray. Prayer is for the honest. Prayer is the battle. Prayer is the way through. Let's pray together.